Remember the first time you walked into Anatomy Lab? For many of us, it was a defining moment in our medical careers. Have you ever thought about those cadavers? Has medical training become more sensitive to these brave souls that dedicated their bodies to science? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Mary Roach. Mary is the acclaimed author of Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. She has had a storied career as a science writer, including being a columnist for Salon.com and a contributing editor at the science magazine Discover. Welcome to ReachMD, Mary. Thank you very much. Mary, the obvious question is, why did you write a book about cadavers, of all things? <laughs> well, I'd been doing magazine and newspaper writing for quite some time, and I'd wanted to do a book. And honestly, cadavers was one of the few things I'd stumbled onto where somebody hadn't written a book. So it seemed like it was a fresh topic, fresh being possibly not the most appropriate word, but it really it sort of grew out of a couple of columns that I had written for Salon.com, and I thought, you know, there's this whole world of post-mortem careers that these people have, and I don't think many people know much about it, so I was off and running. Yeah, well, many times when I read your book, I said to myself, who knew? Who knew? Exactly. Who knew? Most people assume, well, you donate your body to science, you end up in an anatomy lab, but in fact, there were a fascinating array of other things that you can do after you're dead. Let's start off with the obvious, and that is anatomy lab. Tell us how it's changed in recent years. Well, it's in fact being phased out at a number of medical schools at UCSF, uh, University of California, San Francisco. I was at the last full anatomy lab that they had. They were phasing it out partly because it takes up too much time in the curriculum. As you can imagine, medical education has expanded over the years with all the things that have been learned and figured out, and there's so much more for a student to absorb that those anatomy labs are thought to just take up too much time, and they're sort of replacing them with kind of simulated computer-aided dissections, and also prosections where they'll just take a specimen that will show students, for example, the anatomy of the knee or whatever it is, or the the heart. I mean, there'll be a specially prepared specimen. The students themselves won't do the dissection. They'll study an actual anatomical specimen, but they won't go through and take apart an entire body. So there is a move away from full body dissection at some schools. I don't know why, but that makes me kind of sad. There's that reaction from a number of people I spoke to. They felt that it was, on the one hand, almost just a a rite of passage. This is your first patient in a way. And they felt that they were being deprived of not just a tradition, but a a valuable learning experience. There were others who felt like, you know, it's just too much time. I've got too much to do. I'd be delighted to skip it. So there was kind of a mixed bag of reactions. You know, looking back, one of the reasons I chose the medical school I did was because they had the coolest anatomy lab. So I guess it was an important thing for me. I mean, I remember the anatomy lab up at UCSF. It's got this gorgeous view. And I remember thinking, if I donate my body to science, I'd like to end up here because the view is so great, which is, of course, absurd. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if we go back in time, how did gross anatomy labs begin? There were some kind of sordid tales in your book about body snatching and the like. Sure, yeah. In the early days, there were anatomy schools where students would come in, and that was a big chunk of what they were learning. They were doing these dissections, and they were not preserved specimens in the very early days, so there was a season. Obviously, the winter months were when they were doing the dissections, because in the summer, the bodies just didn't keep long enough to do a full-body dissection. The bodies themselves, nobody back you know, in the 1700s, nobody was donating themselves to willed body 
programs. That didn't exist. They were many times stolen. They were dug up by groups of thugs called body snatchers. They would go into cemeteries after dark, and they'd sometimes watch during the day to see where somebody had been freshly buried because they wanted a needed a fresh cadaver. And they'd go in and very carefully dig up the grave, pull out the body, put everything back the way it was, and rush it over to the anatomy school. And apparently they made a pretty good living. One of the things, again, I hadn't known was back to the present, how medical schools are trying to be much more sensitive to the cadaver's needs. Tell us about that. When I went to UCSF, And I spoke to the man who runs the anatomy program, and he said that there are a number of developments in recent years. One of them is a memorial service for the cadavers, and all of the students in the anatomy class go, and many of them will share things they've written, or they'll sometimes perform a song that they wrote. It was actually very touching. The whole class went, and in some schools, they'll invite family members of the cadavers, which is a lovely thing because it's very moving, and the students write very heartfelt things and people are crying and it's taken very seriously. I wasn't sure if it would just be, you know, well, we have to go to that silly cadaver memorial thing. But no, they really seem to have a great deal of gratitude and respect for the cadavers, which was not the case if you go back several decades. I think there was a feeling that humor was encouraged just sort of as a way of coping with the fact that you're in a room with a bunch of cadavers and you've never been there before and you're uncomfortable. So there was sort of a gallows humor that, from what I understand, was more the norm going back 30 or 40 years. Yeah, and not even quite that long back when I was in school. That was definitely the preferred way of dealing with things. Since the book came out, I get emails from doctors saying, hey, I I remember back in anatomy lab, we were leg jousting or sort of thing that it it seems has been discouraged more of late. Good to hear. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Mary Roach. We are discussing the lives of cadavers. Mary, let's shift to studying the science of human decay. This is one of those things I've never really thought about before, but somebody has to look at how do bodies decay and on what timeline. What did you discover there? Well, there's a whole facility down at the University of Tennessee, which is nicknamed the Body Farm. And what they're looking at is the timeline of human decomposition in different environments, for example, different temperatures, different types of soil, the trunk of the car versus the back seat of the car, clothed, naked, any of these situations in which you might find a victim of a crime, it's important to know how does the environment in which the body was found, how does that affect the timeline of decay? Because it's very important for forensics and crime solving to get an exact time of death as possible. So they are looking into this. It's a little plot about an acre near the medical center there. And you first go through the gate and it looks like a a park. It's got hickory trees and squirrels and birds and grass. And then you look a little closer and there's a guy lying under the tree over there. and, And there's a skeleton up the path a few yards. So it's a sort of a surreal little place, but it's important. There were some stunning cases of forensics folks being off by several hundred years in trying to figure out how old are these remains, just because there wasn't a realization of exactly you know, how much temperature, humidity, et cetera, can speed up or slow down the process of decay. I have to ask you a question. Does, does it smell? It does smell. Uh, I was there in August, and I don't recommend August as a time of year to visit the body farm. You certainly can. It doesn't smell as much as you would think. You don't get out of your car in the parking lot next to it and smell it. It's more when you are standing next to a body. 
And then, yes, and it is a very strong and unmistakable smell once you have, have smelled it. And it tends to linger. I wore a pair of boots that I never did manage to get the smell out of the soles of those boots, even after soaking them in Clorox. That leads me to another question. Do they train dogs there, the body retrieval dogs? They don't train them there, but the people who train, there are cadaver dogs, and there's actually a different kind of dog that is trained to alert people when it smells the product of decay. For example, blood or just a few drops or pieces of a body. These dogs will alert their owners. So in other words, they're not looking for a whole body. They're trained to alert their owners if they smell you know, blood, bone, and they will use specimens that are given to them by pathologists or forensics facilities. They will make available some of these materials to the dog trainers. That's true. But that's done at a different location. As far as I know, they don't do it out at the... Uh, I think it might be overwhelming for the dog. <laughs> There's just yeah. too, too much <laughs> yeah. going on there. <laughs> I guess. What did you learn about the science of decaying bodies? In STIFF, I take people through the timeline of decay from the fresh stage, which cracks me up that they would call it the fresh stage, to, you know, when the bacteria really get going in in the decomposition process, they create a lot of gas that they exude, and that bloats the body, a tremendous amount of bloat. And there's also the life cycles of the maggots. They go through their timeline. And so, you know, you just move through bloat and putrefaction on through to the skeletal stage. But there's a huge variation in how quickly this happens, and it depends mostly on heat and humidity. So I wonder how they do that, being that this is studied at University of Tennessee. Do they have an ancillary facility in the desert to look at low humidity? There are actually two or three other sites that have in the past decades been set up in different environments. There's one in the high Midwest. I think it might be just guessing here, Colorado, but there are other environments where they're doing the same thing. And lastly, in the last minute or so that we have, any other uh, fun facts about cadavers? Well, cadavers, they've been involved in some amazingly bizarre undertakings. There was a man who actually used cadavers. He was trying to prove the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin and looking at marks on the, the palms of the hand. He had this whole theory of how the the nails had gone in, and he was using actually cadaver arms to study the marks and a couple of curious markings on the shroud. And I thought, that's got to be the strangest research use of a cadaver I have ever heard of. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Mary. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. We've been speaking with Mary Roach, the author of Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.